All right, well, we are continuing our trek through Paul's letter to the Philippians. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them up to Philippians chapter 1. We began last week uh, by looking at Philippians, uh, for those of you who are new to the Bible, Philippians is a letter. The Bible is made up of different, what we call books, different uh, genres, you could call them. And Philippians was originally a letter. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a particular church. The, the church was located in the Macedonian city of Philippi. And we looked last week at just the greeting, verses 1 and 2. And when we looked at the greeting, what we, what we saw there is really that Paul, that it was, it was not just a typical greeting. It wasn't just dear whoever. But in that greeting, Paul specified uh, what the identity of these believers were. The believers in this church in Philippi, he specified, were saints in Christ at Philippi. And we looked at that last week. In other words, if you are a true believer, if you are someone who has been, by the work of the Holy Spirit, united by true saving faith to Christ, then as you sit here this morning, especially, specifically those of you who are members of Meadowcroft, then you are, in, in that sense, you are members of two churches, we could say. Uh, you are members of what's called the Universal Church. Uh, we had in our confession of faith this morning, we talked about the Universal Church. You could refer to that as the Invisible Church. The Universal Church are all those who truly believe in Christ from the start of the church until the end. That's why we call it the Invisible Church. We don't really know who those are. But if you are in Christ, then you are a member of that church. You're also... And that would be the in Christ part. You're also a member at Westchester. Uh, or for them, it was at Philippi. You are a member of a particular local church located somewhere in space and in time. And Paul was writing to a particular church. And we, we see actually in the greeting that, that it was a local church he was writing to because he even specifies the offices there. The office of elder and deacon, or as, as translated here, overseer and deacon. As I stressed last week, the, the reason we wanted to just really delve into that greeting is because we wanted first of all to be reminded of who we are before we see what we ought to do. That what we do as members of the church, how we ought to live, is always rooted in who we've already been made, who we are. If you read through Paul's letters, he has a lot of commands. He has a lot of statements to churches, to us, and you'll have that in here, of what we ought to do, how we ought to live, the things we ought to be doing for one another and for God. But those things that he commands us to do are always rooted in who we already have been made in Christ. Paul is never saying, if you do these things, then you will be saints in Christ. What he's always saying is, since you are saints in Christ, 
then live this way. That's what we focused on last week. This week, we're going to be going a little bit further, beginning to look at Paul's prayer. Now, his prayer runs from verse 3 through verse 11, but you can divide that prayer, and we're going to do it this week and the next week, by what we see his prayer consists of. The first part of his prayer, which we'll look at today, is really what you could call thanksgiving. He's thanking God for these fellow uh, Christians in Philippi. That's verses 3 to 8. The second half of the prayer is what we might call petition. The first half is thanking God for who they are, and then the second half, verses 9 through 11, is kind of like asking God for who they can become. It's kind of the same type of pattern here. So this morning, we're going to be focused on that first part, this prayer of thanksgiving. So again, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them up. If you don't have a Bible, it didn't bring one with you, but would like to follow along, you can find a Bible in the seats in front of you underneath. Uh, It's a black Bible, English Standard Version, and you'll find our text if you use that Bible on page 980. So I'll begin again from the beginning uh, just to, um, to, to place this in context. So we'll read Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God In all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. One of the things we can see here right off the bat, and it's what I just said, is that Paul is a thankful man. Paul is very thankful. Now again, remember, keep this in mind, as he just stated here, Paul is writing this letter from prison. He's writing this letter from a Roman prison. And yet, he says here, he's doing a lot of remembering. I guess when you're in prison, you don't have a lot you can do. And so Paul is spending a lot of his time remembering. He's reflecting back, and he's thinking Specifically, as he tells them, about them, this church, this church that that he planted some 10 years earlier, this church that he has a a great relationship with, that, that he's visited a number of times, this church that has supported him from the beginning, this church that loves and cares for him deeply and that he deeply loves. One of the things that we will find, for instance, Uh, in the practical love and care that this church has for Paul is that they actually sent him a member of their church named Epaphroditus, which we'll we'll see later again as we go through this uh, series. 
But this man, Epaphroditus, uh, physically visited Paul in prison and brought him what he needed. We don't know exactly what that is. We don't know if it was just finances or maybe it was food, maybe it was clothing. The thing we have to understand is that ancient Roman prisons were not like our prisons today. They're the same in the sense that your freedom is taken away and that you're, you're shut away and, 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 you, and you, have, you can't move about, but they're different in the sense that those ancient Roman prisons did not provide the necessities of life. They did not provide for the prisoners three square meals a day. They did not provide clothing. The prisoner was on his own, and so he survived by what was brought to him and provided to him by his friends and family and those outside. And so Paul has had his needs provided for tangibly by this church in Philippi. Paul is therefore, and rightly so, very thankful for them as he remembers them. But it's interesting to note who Paul is thanking. Paul, notice, is thankful to God. It's interesting, as I read through this carefully, that really stood out to me. Notice, as, as much as he loves and is thankful for the Philippian church, he's not thanking them. Rather, he's thanking God for them. Now, just think about that, because, look, it's not wrong to thank people. It's not a sermon against thanking someone. But think about what we, we typically do. I think typically we thank the person. So let's say, you know, we, we, we have a, a ministry here that provides meals to uh, mothers and, 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 pa and parents who have had a newborn baby. We, we do this all the time. And Michelle has taken part, and, and a lot of the women here have, have taken part in bringing meals. You know, think about what you say. Someone from the church comes and brings you a meal. I, I'm assuming most of us, if not all of us, say, thank you so much for caring for me. Thank you so much for making this meal for me and, and, for, and for your generosity and your love. And, and thank you for caring and taking time out of your schedule to bring this to me. Which is a wonderful thing to say. But Paul isn't doing that. What Paul is doing would be akin to somebody bringing you a meal and you saying to them, looking them in the eye and saying, you know, I thank God for you, sister. I thank him for the gifts of kindness and generosity that he has so clearly given you. I thank you for the way that he has gifted you and that you would be so kind to bring me this meal. Now, neither one of them is wrong, right? Obviously, the first one is not wrong. Both of those statements, though, they clearly reveal that you considered what they did was kind and generous and loving, right? They both do that. But the second statement places God at the center, and the second statement makes him the ultimate source of kindness rather than the person. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's thanking his God for them. I think it's not insignificant that he refers to God as my God. What does Paul mean by that? 
Well, I think on the one hand, uh, Paul means by that that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that exists in uh, a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, the God who has revealed himself humanly as the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the God the Son, that that God is his God. He's not talking about some other God, or he's not talking about a generic God. He's, he's speaking specifically of that God. I, I think at the very least he means that. But I think we've all heard people make a statement here and there. I know I've heard it lots of times throughout my life. People make the statement about their God. I've heard people time and again say, well, my God is this way. Generally speaking, I heard this a lot in college where somebody would not like the fact that, that I was a Christian and that specifically speaking, I was a follower of Jesus. And then they would ask me something about my God which I would then reply, yes, that is actually what God does, or yes, that is actually what God demands, or yes, that is actually what God believes or teaches or whatever, and their response to me would be, well, my God doesn't do that. My God doesn't send people to hell. My God wants me to be happy, that kind of thing. What do those statements mean? Well, well, they reveal a God of our own imagining, what the Bible refers to as an idol. That kind of God thinks, acts, believes, loves, does whatever I think, act, believe, love, and do. In other words, it's, it's a God that believes, acts, loves, and does whatever we say precisely because it's a God of our own creation. It's a God that we have created and that we own. It's a God that we keep in our back pockets and pull out whenever it's convenient to speak about my God. Paul's statement, however, is saying the exact opposite of that. Paul's statement is rooted in verses 1 and 2. Paul's God is Paul's not because Paul has created and owns him, but precisely because God has created and owns Paul. Paul's God, in other words, is God whether he's Paul's God or not. And the reason that's important to understand is that it is precisely that kind of God and only that kind of God that can grant someone joy while languishing in Roman prison. See, a, a God that we create can temporarily make us happy. But that God cannot give us joy in the midst of trials because that God is nothing. One scholar says this, personal hostilities against himself, imprisonment, or the prospect of a violent death cannot rob Paul of joy. Because joy is more than a mood or an emotion. Joy is an understanding of existence that encompasses both elation and depression. That can accept with submission events that bring delight or dismay. Why? Because joy allows one to see beyond any particular event to the sovereign Lord who stands above all events and ultimately has control over them. 
I would recommend to you this book. It's called When Faith is Forbidden, 40 Days on the Front Lines with Persecuted Christians. It's published by the Voice of the Martyrs, and we, uh, this is one of the books that's in our rotation at, at, at dinner time. And I just read the last one. I mean, they're all amazing accounts. But in the last one, uh, the, the, the writer Todd Nettleton, he goes around and visits these persecuted Christians. And he talks about a woman who's in China who was imprisoned for her faith in Christ. And he asked her, what was it like? And he said, when I asked her what was it like, I was, he's, he's keeping a journal of this and this is what all this is. He said, I was expecting to hear all of the details of how horrible the prison was and, and how she was treated and, and how maybe she was tortured and, and the kind of food that she was or wasn't given. I was ready to get all of those details and then when I asked her, what was it like? Her response was, it was a wonderful time. He said, I turned to the translator, now I was confused. I asked about prison. And Sister Tong got this huge smile on her face and said it was wonderful. My translator must not have understood my question. Something had misconnected, hadn't it? Because in my understanding, there's no way anyone would ever say prison is wonderful. Translator assured me that he had translated my question, and her answer assuredly was, oh yes, that was a wonderful time. Prison was wonderful because God was there with her. Sister Tong shared how close, how special her relationship with Jesus had been in prison. It was like he paid extra attention to her during that time, and her heart was warmed daily by his exceptional presence and touch. That's the kind of God, Christian, one who actually exists and stands above and beyond your circumstance, who can bring you joy in the midst of any hardship. Paul's God is his God, not because Paul carries him in his back pocket, but because he carries Paul in the palm of his hands. Paul, notice, thanks God for them. How? By his prayers for them. Paul says here, I am constantly praying for you. All the time, and, and we see this throughout Paul's letters, he, he's always encouraging us to pray all the time. He will encourage us later in this uh, letter to pray. And the word that Paul uses here for prayer is not the word that's usually used for prayer. There's a word that's typically used for prayer uh, in the New Testament, and it, and it simply means asking God or, or telling God or, or petitioning God. And that's oftentimes what's used. Paul uses that phrase, uh, that word for prayer later in this letter. But this word for prayer, it means to ask with urgency, to intensely and earnestly plea and pray to God. Paul will use it, uh, for instance, in Romans chapter 10, when he's speaking about the nation of Israel his brothers according to the flesh, and how they are not saved, but how much he desires them to be saved and to truly believe in Christ. And he says, brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is that they may be saved. That's that intense, earnest plea. 
In Ephesians 6, when he's encouraging Christians, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in this present evil age. When he's telling us to take on the armor of God, he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplicate. That's that word, intensely praying. Later in Philippians 4, he'll use it again. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Paul is thinking about them and thanking God for them, but he's doing it intensely and daily with prayers and prayers and prayers over and over again for them, intensely and regularly thanking God. Brothers and sisters, is is this true of you? Are you, on a regular basis, going intensely to God in prayer and thanking him for your fellow members at Meadowcroft and for other Christians that you know? He is thanking them and praying for them and fondly remembering them, verse 5, because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, when we read the word partnership, I think we tend to think of a kind of business partnership, uh, an agreement, a contract, that kind of thing. We think, perhaps, in terms of a project or a work that is shared. And Paul certainly means that, and we'll talk about that in a second. I think he means that. But it's interesting that the Greek word that he uses here that is translated partnership, and I think it's a fine translation, is the word koinonia. And for those of you who have been in church long enough, you've probably heard that word before. And that word is almost always translated not partnership, but fellowship. Koinonia is often translated fellowship. And I think the reason it's good to keep that in mind is because Paul is speaking of a fellowship that is deeper than a a partnership, if you will. What he, he says, we have this fellowship in the gospel. And I think before anything else, before he means you and I are, are sharing in the partnership of sharing the gospel, what he means is that you and I share in the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. It again goes back to verses one and two. You and I, he's saying, share in the fellowship because we are in Christ. Our fellowship goes far beyond a partnership because our fellowship prior to and higher than our partnership in spreading the good news of the gospel is that you and I have been brought into a Holy Spirit wrought fellowship in Christ, in the person of Christ. Paul is, he's not simply saying, you know, we have a lot in common He's he's not even saying, you know, you and I share together in an important work and we're working towards the same goal. Instead, what he's saying is you and I have been united by the Holy Spirit to the same Lord and therefore we have the same goal. You know, if you are single, I don't care if, if you're single and you desire one day to be married, I don't care if you're high school, I don't care if you're you know, a young adult, I don't care what age you are, if, if that 
if, if that's where you stand today, you should strongly consider who you're thinking about marrying. Now, obviously, that should go without saying, but you should not even think, if you are united to Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, you should not even entertain for a second trying to unite in the same life goals in that kind of partnership with someone who is not united, first of all, to the same Lord by the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I mean, first of all, to do so is, is just a, a, a clear violation of God's law. He tells us not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. But it's also just stupid. I mean, even if it didn't violate God's law, think about what you're doing. You are entering into the closest human relationship that you can have with someone who does not share in the fellowship with you in, the, in your most important relationship, that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I see, I've seen in my life time and time again, people do this anyway. They enter into marriage with an unbeliever and then somehow hope that it works out. Now, when I was <coughs> a teenager, I remember I even made a, a hard copy list. I don't have it anymore, I don't think. I made a hard copy list of everything that I wanted my future wife to have. And I remember that number two was she must love the Simpsons. <laughs> number three was something along the lines of she must love watching SportsCenter. Now, I mean, that is ridiculous. <laughs> but, but, you know, I... Obviously, what I was after was like, I need to have somebody who has the same kind of likes and interests that I have. It was just done in a stupid teenage way. Thankfully, number one was she must love Jesus. But, you know, even at that age, my naive you know, teenage self had no idea how difficult marriage and fatherhood would be. If I am so thankful that Lord provided me a wife who shares the same Lord that I have. Because if it wasn't for that, I mean, life is hard enough when you're pulling together by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so I just encourage you to seek someone before you are united in the same goal, that you be united in the same Lord. Now, that's the first thing he's talking about, a, a fellowship in Christ, a, a spirit-wrought fellowship. But secondly, I think he is talking here about kind of the fruits of that union. He is looking at the works that he sees in their life. He's looking at uh, what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. He's seeing it in them. And he's seeing this partnership that they have and that they're acting this way, they're living a certain way. He sees it both in their own personal witness, in their own lives, and also in the way that they support his work and his ministry. We think about oftentimes when we think about our works and uh, Stan Gale, who, who just preached through uh, the, the letter to James, James oftentimes talks about works and 
uh, how your, your faith is going to produce works, uh, that kind of thing. When we think about works or the fruit of the Spirit, we, we, we oftentimes will talk about what's called sanctification. And a lot of times, I think, well, obviously, erroneously, we think of sanctification as what we do. That justification is what God does. God declares us righteous. God covers us in Christ's righteousness. Christ took the penalty for our sins, and then God, with his gavel, declares us righteous. That's justification. But sanctification, that's on us. Sanctification, how we grow and what we do and, and how holy we, we get and the kind of works we do, that's our side of the coin, if you will. That's not true. Now, we do a lot, and Paul's going to talk about what we do, but everything that we do is produced in us by the power of God. What is sanctification? Our Westminster Shorter Catechism gets it right. Sanctification. Now, if, if I read to you what justification is, it says justification is an act of God's free grace. And again, we, we say, yeah, that's, that's true. It's an act of God's free grace. Sanctification, what does it say? Is the work of God's free grace. Where we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Paul is witnessing in this church the fruit of the Spirit. And he says that he's witnessed that from the very first days of the church. Now in in Acts 16, which we read last week, we see the humble beginnings of this Philippian church. And when we read that account, what we see is that Paul and his little band, including Timothy, who they met right from the start, and Silas, and, and, and no doubt some others, are making their way, and they make their way into Macedonia, where Philippi is located. Now, typically, when Paul would enter uh, a city, a Gentile city where he would go and, and, and proclaim the gospel, the first place he would go, he would make a, a beeline to the synagogue there. Just read through Acts and you'll see, he always went to the synagogue. And the synagogue is where he would go and he would debate those who were there and he would show them how Jesus is the end goal, the focal point, the, 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 the everything of the Old Testament. He would show that, and he would proclaim the gospel. Interestingly, when he showed up at Philippi, he doesn't go to the synagogue. Instead, he goes down to the riverside. And you say, well, why would he not go to the synagogue? Because there wasn't one there. To, to have a synagogue, you needed at least 10 Jewish God-fearing men to start a synagogue. So evidently at Philippi, there weren't even 10 Jewish men there. This was a Gentile city where, that was fully Roman and fully pagan in every way you could imagine. I mean, we saw that last week. It's, it's a Roman colony. Roman soldiers were settled there. They didn't have to pay taxes and, and all of those things. So Paul and Timothy and, and others, they, they wandered down by the riverside on the Sabbath day rather than going to the synagogue. And and, and what do they find there? 
not, not a, a group of ten men who are discussing and talking about how they're going to start a synagogue, but they find a little group of women. A little group of women down by the river who are praying. And Paul and, and Timothy join them in prayer, and then Paul begins to share the gospel. And there was one woman there, a God-fearing Gentile named Lydia, who was trying as best she could to, to follow the Jewish God that she had heard about. And she heard the gospel, and this woman Lydia in that little prayer group became the first European convert to Christianity that Paul had. She was the first. That was the seed of that church that was planted in Philippi. One woman, at least she was the one that was highlighted, who sat by a river in Philippi. And what do we see? It's interesting if you read the, the, this account in Acts, we immediately see the fruit of her conversion to Christianity. Immediately. Because Paul says, or Luke, who's writing the account, he says, look, right away, she prevailed upon us. She urged us. She essentially demanded that we come and stay with her in her house. She immediately was baptized, she and her family. She immediately, right after coming to faith, proclaimed for all the world to see that she was a follower of Jesus Christ, and then she invited these men into her home and, and treated them with love and hospitality. Now, that was a big deal, because as was late, was, was immediately after that accounted, this city of Philippi did not take kindly to people being Christians. It was a Roman city, and to proclaim Christ as the Lord and the only Lord was not something that Rome smiled upon. And so later on, we see Paul and Silas, who are proclaiming Jesus to be the only one, arrested, beaten, stripped, and thrown into the inner prison. Do so you think about planting a church? If you're planting a church, Probably the worst way to start planting a church is with one person that you find down by a riverside and then being stripped, beaten, and thrown in prison. If anyone started a church that way and said, I'm planting a church and this is what happened, you would probably really feel that that church isn't going to make it. That's the beginning of this, but God placed Paul and Silas in that prison for his purposes so that when he miraculously let them escape, the next person that was converted was the Philippian jailer. And what do we see from that conversion? Immediate fruit. From the first day, Paul says, the Philippian jailer, what does he do? This is the jailer that probably before hearing the gospel was glad that these two pagans who are preaching against the gods of Rome are beaten and thrown into his prison. Immediately upon coming to faith in Christ, Luke tells us in Acts that he washed their wounds. He brought them to his house, he fed them, and he was baptized along with his family. Paul says, from the beginning, I have seen from your own personal witness how you share in this fellowship with me. More than that, he says in verses 7 to 8, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partak partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense. 
and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Here is where Paul, I think, is, is mainly talking about how they are tangibly supporting him, both in his, from the day that he left them, again, he planted them 10 years earlier, he says in Philippians chapter 4 that when I left you, you were the only church of all the churches that I planted in Macedonia, you were the only church when I left to continue on my missionary journey that supported me right from the get-go. Nobody else supported me. So in, both in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, as I go around planting other churches and defending the gospel and confirming the gospel and preaching the gospel, you are constantly supporting me. And now, even in my imprisonment, you haven't abandoned me. You're supporting me now. <clears throat> Is it any wonder, then, why he has such great affection for this church? The language, I remember, you know, Michelle, I don't want to embarrass you, but she, she said, you know, as I, as I read through Philippians chapter 1, what really stands out to me is how much Paul loves that church. The affection that he has for them. And it, it, it just gushes out of this letter. It says, I hold you in my heart, and I have for you the affection of Christ Jesus. Let me ask you a question you're a member here at Meadowcroft. When you think of your fellow church members, are you more often filled with great annoyance or with great affection? What fills your heart? You know, because it's, it's easy when you're living life with someone. Just ask any teenager, ask any sibling, what they think about their siblings. Ask any teenager what he or she thinks about their parents. Ask the parents what they think about their teenagers. I think you will find that it's easy to become annoyed with those you live life with. I think it's easy for church members when they think of other church members to have great annoyance, to become annoyed at how impersonal they are, to become annoyed at how socially awkward they are, to become annoyed at how they raise their kids compared to how you raise your kids. If you find that to be true of you, that you generally become annoyed when you think of your fellow members of Meadowcroft, then I, I want to encourage you to do two things. One, I want to encourage you to begin regularly praying for them. And if you don't have a church directory, you can easily get one. Ask Donna. We make them in-house. We print them here. Uh, we keep them updated. We try to as much as we can. Uh, and, and just go through it. Go through it. I don't care if you don't even know the people. If you've never even said hi to them, you can pray for them. Because you know things that you know they need because you need them. Go through it. Begin thanking God for them. I guarantee you, this isn't from God's word, I don't think, but from my own experience, if you experience anything like I do, you will begin to love them. 
you will begin to have affection for them if you spend time praying for them. But the second thing I want you to do is begin to envision them not as how they are now, but how they will one day be. The Philippian church was not spiritually and morally perfect by any means. We will see Paul has to write to them and encourage them and challenge them and, and all. They had their struggles. But I think the central and most important verse in this section in fact, I think it's the central and most important verse in this entire prayer, including next week's petition section, is verse 6. It's the one that you've probably memorized, if you've memorized anything from this letter. He says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am sure of this. That word means I am certain I have complete confidence is what he's saying. He's saying, look, you're not perfect now. That's why I have to write you this letter in part, because I have to challenge you on certain things. You're not perfect now, but I am certain that one day you will be. And notice where Paul's certainty lies. His certainty is not with him. He's in prison. What can he do to bring them to completion? And it's not even in them even though he sees fruit in their lives, his confidence, his utter confidence that one day they will be glorified rests completely in God's power. Which is amazing when you think about it because it was Paul who started the church. It was Paul who went there first. It was Paul who went down to the riverside. It was Paul who preached the gospel. It was Paul who went to prison and prayed and sung hymns so that, so that the jail cells were open. It was Paul who baptized. It was Paul who preached the gospel there. It was Paul who appointed elders and deacons before he left. It was Paul who has visited occasionally. It's Paul who has continued correspondence with them. If anyone would you would think would, would say, I who have begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. It would be Paul. And yet Paul, who's there from the beginning, says not I who began the good work in you, but he. What he's saying is that when, when all the chapters of human history are closed on the day of Jesus Christ, what I see in you will be complete because God who began it will complete it. How can Paul say this if he's the one that did everything? Well, because as he writes to the Corinthian church, I planted, Apollos watered, sure we did stuff, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants, Paul, nor he who waters, Apollos, is anything, but only God who gives the growth. How can Paul say that? Because Paul has seen God's power from the very beginning. It was Paul who was on the road to Damascus to kill Christians. It was Paul who hated 
Jesus so much that he made it his life's goal to end the church. And it's the same Paul who's now sitting in prison thanking God in Christ that he has been united to the same Lord as they. Paul can think back to how he wasn't looking for Christ at all and Christ intercepted him in his darkness and said, I have chosen you. You are going to be my instrument. It was Paul who could see God's sovereign and almighty hand when, when God would not let Paul go to Asia, but rather said, no, go to Macedonia. You go where I send you. It was Paul who, when he got there and, and started preaching the gospel, knew that it wasn't Lydia who on her own understood the gospel, but rather it was God who opened her heart to understand what Paul was saying. He saw God's sovereign and almighty hand when he miraculously broke the chains and opened the prison doors for the Philippian jailer to be saved. Brothers and sisters, it is precisely because Paul did not start the church that you and I can have all the confidence in the world that the work that God began here in us, he will bring to completion. Brothers and sisters, do you have complete and total confidence that one day when you see the Lord Jesus, he will say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Do you have complete and total confidence in that this morning? If you don't, then I encourage you this morning to take another look at Jesus. Don't look at yourself. Look to him because it is he, it is he, not you, who will bring you to full completion. It's not in your power to do it. Until you get there, until you're glorified, you will have many ups and downs. Your following of Christ will be shaky. Sometimes you will see yourself running the other way. But it's not you who bring yourself to completion. It is him. Until that day, he gives us means of grace. And this morning, he gives us the Lord's Supper.